Well, thank you so much, Abby and band. It's been so great to worship with you guys. And a big hello to everyone out there. Welcome to church. It's so good to have you all joining in wherever you're coming from. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Christy, and I've been part of Hills Baptist now for about three years. I'd love to just thank Nick and the other pastors for the opportunity to preach tonight. Um, it's such an honor. And man, the Word of God is meaty. It's so rich, and my mind has just been blown so many times over the past few weeks as I've um, spent time on this scripture and it's really blessed and challenged me, and I pray that it will for all of you listening tonight as well. Earlier this week, I heard that in a year, for every one hour of Christian content that the average 15 to 23-year-old uh, views or listens to, there is nine hours of secular content. One to nine. So that's a, a big ratio. And even if you're slightly outside of that age bracket or maybe very much so out of that age bracket, um, the point is that we are all so overwhelmed with TV, with uh, music, with social media and ads, all of which try to um, plant and feed within us desire. Desire to... Uh, to have a certain reputation, desire to look a certain way, to, to earn a certain status or to have a certain experience. And all of this content promotes a completely different worldview to that of a Christian. So this raises the question, how do we as Christians live in a culture that is caught up in human desire? Over the past month, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter and 1 Peter is a, a letter written by Peter to the scattered Christians of what was Asia Minor of the time to encourage them to stand firm in the grace of God, essentially by telling them who they are and how to live. And tonight, uh, the passage is, is essentially, um, it's about how we live as Christians in a setting that opposes what we believe. And the Christians of Asia were in a similar position to us in that they were also surrounded by an opposing culture. And so Peter addresses the question of, of how we live as Christians in this culture by telling us to look back and see that Christ has come and to look forward knowing that Christ is coming again. So tonight we're going to unpack what it means to look in these two different directions. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this day. And I thank you for every person who's listening right now, Lord. I thank you that our lives are a gift from you. And I thank you for your word, that it is also such a gift and that it is a light that directs us. And I thank you for Peter, for the life that he lived and for the letter that he wrote. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, we might understand everything that you intended us to understand from this scripture. I pray that you'll help me to communicate in a way that is um, solely honoring of you. Amen. So part one, looking back. If you have your Bibles, we'll start by reading um, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 6. 
And if not, the verses will come up on the screen as well. So 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 6. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So who is Peter writing to? He's writing to the Christians of Asia, who, as it says in verse 3, were once living as pagans do. So they used to be caught up in drunkenness, in lust, in idolatry, but then they decided to follow Jesus. And they were still living in the same pagan culture after that. So as a result, these Christians were being persecuted and continually pressured to revert back to their old ways. Verse 1 says, Since Christ suffered in, the body, in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. So Peter was first calling these Christians to reflect on the attitude of Jesus. Before calling them to do anything, Peter wanted to make it known that Christ made the first move. Christ first came. We don't serve a God who, who asks us to do things that he hasn't already gone ahead and done himself. In verses 1 to 6, there's this beautiful parallel of the things that Christ did when he was, was living on earth and the things that Peter is calling the Christians to do. Peter said, in order to not get caught up in, in living for human desires, Christians should be willing to suffer so that they can be done with sin, so that they can live for the will of God regardless of the abuse that this draws, because one day they, along with all other people, will give account to God of their lives and then live on according to God in the spirit or have eternal life, in other words. So if we consider the life of Jesus, we can see that he did all of these things. Verse 1 tells us outright that Jesus suffered. 1 Peter 2 verses 22 says, that Jesus lived a sinless life. It says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And we know that Jesus truly lived for the will of God. In Luke 22 verses 42, it says that when Jesus was praying on the Mount of Olives before he suffered on the cross, he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus lived for the will of God despite the abuse that it drew. In 1 Peter 2 verses 23, it says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And finally, though it was Pilate 
who authorised the crucifixion of Jesus. And in this sense, he was judged according to human standards. We know that, that Jesus lived on in the spirit. First Peter verses 3.18 says, He was put to death in the body, but are made, made alive in the spirit. So all through Jesus' life, we see his attitude of humility, of obedience and of submission to God, regardless of the physical and social cost. And it is to this way of life that Peter was calling the Christians to. He said, arm yourselves with the same attitude. I think it's powerful here to consider Peter's original attitude towards suffering. In Mark 8, 33, when Jesus, uh, when, yeah, when Jesus predicted his death, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. He rebuked him because Jesus was talking about future suffering. And Jesus' response here is pretty stern. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Understanding Jesus' response here is key. In adopting Jesus' attitude towards suffering, the Christians of Asia Minor would have had to forfeit their human concerns. They could have easily avoided suffering by adopting the sinful practices of the pagan culture around them. No one would have abused them if they had have simply joined in. Yet the sufferings which came from their refusal to join in were evidence of their desire to be done with sin. No doubt these Christians would have been afraid of being judged according to human standards because at their time, this judgment saw them being persecuted and even martyred for their faith. To the pagans, it could have looked as failure, like failure seeing Christians be persecuted. And to the Christians themselves, seeing fellow believers die around them, it could have dwindled their hope. But Peter encourages them in verse 6 with confident hope of eternal life beyond the grave. Christ came and suffered so that, it, and, and he, he preached the gospel even to those who later died, so that when Christ comes back and God has the final say, they can live on in, in regard to the spirit. They can have eternal life. In our culture, we don't yet face the same persecution as the Christians of Asia. This overt persecution is very serious, but we should never underestimate the hardship of, of withstanding um, the subtle pressures to deny Christ that we face today. In one sense, these more subtle pressures are almost more threatening to our faith because it's not as obvious that our faith is under attack and the battle lines are more blurred. We're consistently groomed to desire a lifestyle of comfort, of security, of ease and of pleasure where we fit in and when we are liked. And it would be easy to just fit in by joining in on things like gossip with friends at uni or having a few too many drinks with workmates or watching a Netflix series or listening to music that promotes lust. And you know what? If we were joining in on these things, the people around us probably wouldn't bat an eyelid. But if we weren't, 
I'm sure they would certainly notice. Although all these might seem like small and and harmless things, they don't actually ask us to deny Christ with our lips. They gradually cause us to deny Christ with our lifestyle. Let me say that again. Although these might seem like small and harmless things that never actually ask us to deny Christ with our lips, they gradually cause us to deny Christ with our lifestyle. To live for the will of God will involve the difficult act of swimming against the cultural current when it would be so easy just to turn around and go with the flow. But the result of going with the flow is that we too easily get caught up in human desires. And in all of this, Peter isn't suggesting that we seek suffering. Suffering isn't a condition of Christian salvation, but he is calling us to be willing to suffer. If you think about it, the opposite of being willing to suffer would be trying to safeguard our comfort. And if our focus is on maintaining a comfortable lifestyle, then naturally this will influence our decisions and our behaviour in a way that we will avoid suffering, even when it causes us to sin. But if we are willing to suffer, then our focus shifts from trying to maintain a comfortable life to living for the will of God, regardless of the cost, and therefore making obedience to God decisively more important than our desire to avoid pain. We cannot be willing to suffer and trying to safeguard our comfort at the same time. The Bible tells us we cannot serve two masters. And realising this is a part of my own story. I grew up uh, in a Christian household for most of my life and believed in God for most of my life. But as I entered my teenage years and grew in independence and, and started branching out into the world a bit more, I started to spend almost all of my time with people who didn't know Jesus. And I never noticed at the time, but little bit by little bit, I started to become very focused on the same things that they were. I started to become focused on my reputation and um, the way that I looked, the way that I talked and, and the things that I did all in order to be liked. I genuinely believed in Jesus. I loved him and I valued my faith. But I also began to love the way that it felt to blend in and I valued my comfort. So I was living this dual lifestyle of going to church on a Sunday and then blending in nicely with the rest of the culture every other day of the week. I never intended on walking away from the Lord, but gradually after many little decisions here and there of joining in on what seemed like harmless things, that's what happened. Until one night when I arrived home from church My housemate at the time, who was not a Christian, asked me a question that was so piercing, I became speechless. She looked at me and she said, Christy, what's the point of being a Christian if your life is no different to mine? And it hit me. And I remember just going into the shower and all I could do was cry and cry. My housemate was exactly right. There was no difference between my life and hers, but there should have been. I cannot describe to you the anguish that I felt in thinking about 
all the time that I'd wasted living for myself, trying to build myself up rather than living for God. My one precious life that he gave me and that he paid a price for, I was not living for him. I believed in Jesus in my heart, but I was denying him with my lifestyle. You know, Peter also denied Christ three times in efforts to avoid suffering. He genuinely loved Jesus, but he saw the way that Jesus was being treated and, and, and he denied Christ in fear of being affiliated with him. And I want to ask tonight, is your attitude causing you to deny Christ in fear of what it may cost to be affiliated with him? If you've read the book of John, you'll know that even after Jesus suffered and was rejected, when he rose from the grave, he so beautifully restored and forgave Peter. And Jesus has forgiven and restored me. I said at the start that this passage causes us to look back. And often we can associate looking back with feelings of shame and regret of, of just wasting time living for perishable things. But Peter is calling Christians to look back further and see that Christ has come and set a beautiful example for us to follow. But we cannot stop there because Peter is also calling us to look forward and to see that Christ is coming again. Which brings us to the second part, looking forward. So let's read the last half of the passage together. If you've still got your Bibles there, it's 1 Peter 4 verses 7 to 11. It says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. For the Christians of Asia, this call to be alert and of sober mind was a direct contrast to the way that the pagans were living around them in drunkenness. If you think about what it means to be drunk, it is, it's filling your body with a substance that causes you to become intoxicated, to become delusional and to lose control. When it says in verse 4 that the pagans are surprised that you don't join them, that word join can mean to rush together. So Peter was creating this picture of people rushing together without self-control into a, a wasteful recklessness living in a way that opposes the call to be alert and sober mind would be living in ignorance of the end. But Peter was calling these Christians to stop. Don't be delusional, but to remember that the end is near. And what does this mean for us today? Well, I think living in ignorance of the end is so easy for us to do, especially because many of us are still quite young and are 
always told you have your whole life ahead of you. Also, our culture is so preoccupied with increasing and improving the quality of life, which is not inherently bad, but it can be distracting. And our culture loudly promotes the the narrative of going to school and then going to uni and then getting a job and having a family and then retiring. And again, I'm not saying this is bad, but all of these things feed within us a false sense of time and of self-sufficiency and and independence and control. Perhaps drunkenness isn't necessarily a a problem for you, but still the call to be alert and sober-minded is so highly relevant for us all because we are all prone to becoming filled with substance or messages that delude reality and hinder us from living in expectation of Jesus' return. So let this be a wake-up call to us all. As I was writing the sermon, it hit me that the only thing that we can be sure of in the future is the fact that Jesus is coming back. The fact that Jesus is coming back is the only thing that we can be sure of in the future. And if, if coronavirus has taught us anything, it's that nothing else is guaranteed. Yet we live in so much anticipation for so many other things like holidays, graduations, promotions, weddings, um, trips to the dentist or exams. We can even live in anticipation of things that we fear like debt. But none of these things are sure. Peter's call to be alert and of sober mind is immediately followed by so that you may pray. And although the next line says, above all love, Peter is first calling us to pray. You see, prayer is like fuel. A car was made to move, to transport, to race, but it cannot do so unless it first has fuel. We were made to love, to glorify God, but we cannot do so unless we are in prayer and communion with God. The call to be alert and to pray is especially powerful coming from Peter, who originally failed to do these two very things. In Matthew 26, 41, after Peter fell asleep, when Jesus had asked him in Gethsemane to to keep watch and pray, Jesus said to him, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, when when we come to the Lord in prayer, we're positioning ourselves in a place of dependence before him, knowing that our flesh is weak. If we try to go through life without, without prayer and communion with God, then who knows what kind of messages we are subconsciously allowing us to be influenced by. Remember that ratio at the start that I said, one to nine, one hour of Christian content for every nine hours of secular content. Prayer is like fuel, but there are different kinds of fuel. And although the wrong fuel may still make your car work for a brief time, it will never be able to work the way that it was meant to. So Peter was saying, be watchful, fill up your tank with the right fuel. 
Prayer and communion with God keep us in a place of remembering that Christ has come and remembering that he is coming again and can thus drive us in love. In the last few verses of this passage, Peter provides a picture of of what living in Christian community should look like. As we know, the Christians of Asia were surrounded by pagans and were suffering as a result of living for the will of God. So the way that they lived together in community was crucial in supporting them to stand firm, remembering the example of Jesus and anticipating his return. Peter's call to love each other deeply was a direct contrast to the way that pagans were living in lust. To lust after someone is, is, or something is to long after someone or something for your own desire. But to love is a selfless act. If we look around, the love that we see in our culture today is so conditional. People love when it feels good or when it's easy or when it's reciprocal or when they can get something in return. And if you're listening tonight and that's the only kind of love that you have known, then I'm sorry because that is not the love that Jesus showed. The verse says, love each other deeply. And that word deeply can mean at full stretch. And what better picture of love at full stretch is there than of Jesus literally spread out on the cross for us. The love of God is not self-seeking, yet it lays down its life for another. It is the reach of God's love through Jesus that then stretches our love. We can love because he first loved us. The verse goes on to say, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Our love cannot, of course, forgive sins. Jesus has already done that. But when we love as God does, we are prepared to overlook and to forgive the faults of others, which means not keeping a record of their wrongs. Once again, it's powerful to consider Peter's original thoughts on what this kind of love was. He was the disciple who, in Matthew 18, 21, asked Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And he proposes a generous maximum of seven. Peter is so relatable. But Jesus corrects him saying, not seven, but 70 times seven. A few years ago, I was in Africa on a missions trip and I was able to witness this forgiving love in such a powerful way. I was staying in a small hut with several other Christians for three months as we um, served, we helped serving in, in different programs across the surrounding villages. And there was one person in my hut who I'm going to name Jan. And Jan was a a particularly hard person for me to love because I would see the way that she so beautifully served throughout the day. But then coming back to our hut at night, she was quite different and would make decisions um, regarding our resources and our space only for her own gain. And there was this one night when Jan had an argument, a very heated argument with someone else in our hut and she ended up slamming the door on this person. And one of the base leaders heard the commotion and came over and said, right, everyone in this house needs to grab your Bibles and go out 
and spend some time alone with Jesus until we can reconcile this household. And at first, I felt really hard done by. I felt quite high and mighty because I didn't think that I uh, was directly involved in what was going on. And I didn't feel like I needed to repent of anything. But I went out with my Bible, and as I came before the Lord, I was so humbled because the Lord showed me the bitterness that was in my heart that was hindering me from being able to love Jan. Anyway, we all came back and we rejoined in a circle and everyone had the chance to, to say what they'd prayed or, or what they had read in the Bible and were given a chance to apologise. And everyone in the circle spoke until it got to Jan and she was the only one who had nothing to say. And this new humility that I found in my time alone with God left instantly. And I had this hunger for justice. And I thought, out of everyone in this group, Jan was the one who was in the wrong. And I thought, I, I just told myself, it's okay because the base leader's here. She knows what's going on. And she is going to call Jan out and, and prompt her to apologize. But to my outrage... <laughs> At first, there was a bit of silence and the base leader was just waiting. And then she said, I really feel like the Lord is telling me that we should all wash Jan's feet. And I was like, what? And within me, this anger was churning and I didn't feel very good inside. But I watched as this base leader led by example and she went and got a bucket and filled it with water, which was scarce at the time, and got some lovely soap, which was also like gold. And she led the way by washing Jan's feet. And every person in the room washed Jan's feet and prayed blessing over her as we did so. And at first you could see that Jan was quite uncomfortable with what was going on. But she soon burst into tears and, and she asked for forgiveness and from that day onwards, our house was a totally different place. And it is this kind of stretched out and forgiving love that Peter was calling the Christians to. It's this love that then equips us to be able to serve. I love that the Bible doesn't just prohibit us from evil human desires by saying, do not, uh, do not be drunk, do not lust and, and do not get caught in idolatry, but it directs us to the way of life by saying, do pray and, and do love and do glorify God instead. The call in verses 9 to 11 to serve through hospitality, through speaking, through using gifts, so that in all things God is glorified, was also a direct contrast to the way pagans were living. The pagans were caught up in idolatry, which is the worship of false gods. But Peter was calling these Christians to recognise that all that they had was from God and thus to use their gifts to serve him so that he alone was glorified. And although we don't have the same false gods as the pagans did, idolatry is still a very real thing. Self-promotion is a big thing in our culture today. But something I realised over the last several years is that Self-promotion is exhausting and it's only when we truly believe that all that we have is from the Lord and for Him that we can be free.
Peter's picture in these last few verses of what Christian community should look like is a place where believers can come and experience the grace of God through the way that we love one another, even when it's not deserved, and through the way that we serve one another faithfully with whatever we have been given for God's glory. But how do we actually love and serve in a practical way at the moment? Well, you could call someone up for no other reason than to simply check in on how they're going. Even if that someone has wronged you in the past, that is loving. Or now that coronavirus restrictions are easing off, you could serve by showing hospitality and inviting some people over for house church. And not just your friends that, uh, that you have over all the time, but perhaps some new people as well. And through being faithful stewards of whatever God has given us, we point one another to Christ, which helps us to stand firm in the culture that we live in. We can live in such a way because Christ came and he showed us how. And we must live in such a way because Christ is coming back. Knowing that Christ is coming back should stir within us a holy fear that will drive us to pray, to love counterculturally, to serve counterculturally and to glorify God. But it also gives us a living hope that regardless of what suffering this life brings, Christ is coming back. He will judge justly. He will redeem all. And he has already made a way for us to live eternally with him. Abby and the band are going to come back up now. And we're going to sing again the song, Christ is Enough. You know, the bridge of this song doesn't say, I have decided to believe in Jesus. It says, I have decided to follow Jesus. And it will cost. But remember, two directions. Look back and remember that Christ has come. And look forward. Let the anticipation of Christ's return guide the way that we live. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you came. That you so humbly came from heaven. You forfeited your rights and, and you gave your life for us. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you, that you suffered, that you gave your all so that we could live. And Lord, I thank you that you are coming back. I thank you, Father, that we can trust you as a God who is going to judge justly. And I thank you, Lord, that you've made a way for us to live eternally with you. And I pray, Father, that you will help us by your spirit to be alert and, and to be watchful and to pray, knowing that you're coming back, even despite all of the distractions without, around us. And I ask, Lord, that, um, that you'll help those in particular who are fearful of what it will cost to be affiliated with you. I pray for those who are holding on to their comfort. Lord, I ask that you will give them courage and conviction and that they will be encouraged by the love that you showed 
that your love will birth in them a new fearlessness that sees them stand firm in our culture for your glory. Lord, I ask that every person listening now, that their lives will be lives that glorify you. Through whatever gifts that you've given them, Lord, through through their abilities, through their resources, through the health that you've given them, the money that you've given them, the time, Lord, that all of these things will be used to lift your name high, will be used to glorify you and to bring many more to know your name and to bow before you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your forgiving grace and love that restores us. And I thank you for the hope that we have in you that outlasts any suffering that we could possibly face in this lifetime. We love you, Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.